Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good afternoon, all, and welcome to today's Heritage event. My name is Paul J. Larkin, Jr. I am the Rumpel Fellow in the Mies Center and have the distinct privilege of being your host for today's event. Before I say anything else, I would like to thank each of you for turning into today's program. You have many options in how you want to spend your time. I appreciate your spending some of that time with us to learn about an important, though understandably controversial topic namely a criminological theory known as the Minneapolis effect. According to that theory, the tremendous increase in homicides and aggravated assaults that we saw last summer in the nation's largest cities is attributable to two factors. One factor was the need to redeploy the police from across entire cities to deal with the massive street demonstrations that followed the death of George Floyd. The other factor was a decrease in discretionary, proactive, investigatory, stop, question, and frisk measures by police officers in response to the social and political attacks leveled against the police. There is a consensus among scholars that large American cities experienced a dramatic increase in violent crime like homicide and aggravated assault from May through July of 2020. In fact, last year was likely the deadliest year for gun-related homicides since 1999. Consider the figures from just three cities. Start with Minneapolis. Minneapolis saw a 95% year-over-year increase in homicides between May and August 1 of 2020. Turn to Chicago. Homicides more than doubled in July 2020 compared to July 2019. Finish with New York City. Gotham City experienced a 50% increase in homicides and a 112% increase in shootings. Sadly, I have named just a few of the cities that experienced higher levels of gun violence resulting in homicides or aggravated assaults from last year. Now, those figures are alarming. They prompt the obvious question of what caused that significant spike in violence. Scholars disagree about the answer to that question. But the two scholars I have with me today will argue, convincingly, I might add, that the Minneapolis effect explains this phenomenon better than any other theory. Today's speakers will discuss that theory compared to others. Other possible explanations, like seasonal changes, lockdown measures, or a rise in the purchase of firearms, do not well explain the spike in homicides they certainly not, do not explain it as well as the Minneapolis effect does. Now, it is imperative to keep in mind that the Minneapolis effect theory does not simplistically argue that the protests last summer directly caused the spike in violent crime. Rather, the theory identifies a different type of relationship. Namely, the protests reduced discretionary police street-level enforcement a phenomenon known as depolicing, and it was the depolicing that led to the surge in violence. Additionally, it is painful, though important to note, that most of the victims of this violent surge were minorities, black or brown. For example, of the Chicago homicide spike, 94% were black or Latino. In Philadelphia, 81% were black. And in New York City, 90% were black or brown. Accordingly, saving black and brown lives requires us to understand precisely what caused the 2020 surge in violence so that law enforcement officers and the public can avoid more bloody summers. We hope that today's conversation will illuminate some mistakes that were made last year and certainly some mistakes about what caused these events last year. But our goal is not to cast blame on any individual or any organization. Our goal is to start a discussion so that we can save lives, whether black, brown, or any other color, because they all matter. Now, any discussion about such a controversial issue 
demands knowledge, judgment, and expertise. As will become apparent in just a moment, our two speakers have all three qualities. Allow me to introduce them, and let me welcome Professor Paul Cassell and Professor Lawrence Rosenfall to the stage. First up is Professor Paul Cassell. He is the Ronald N. Boyce Presidential Professor of Criminal Law and a University Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Utah. He is a leading researcher and scholar on criminal and civil justice issues, particularly involving the rights of victims. Professor Cassell has published numerous widely cited articles on topics such as crime victims' rights, wrongful convictions, interrogations, confessions, and proactive policing. In 2020, Hein Online ranked Professor Cassell as one of the top 250 most cited law scholars of all time. Previously, before becoming a professor, he was a clerk for then DC Circuit Judge Antonin Scalia and later for Chief Justice Warren Burger. Later, Professor Cassell served for five years as a US District Court Judge for the District of Utah until resigning to, to return full-time as a professor and work very closely involved in the field of victims' rights. He received both his BA and his JD from Stanford University. On deck is Professor Lawrence Rosenthal. He is a professor of law at the Fowler School of Law at Chapman University. A former law clerk for Justice John Paul Stevens, Professor Rosenthal entered the practice of law as an assistant US attorney for the Northern District of Illinois where he specialized in organized crime and public corruption prosecutions. He subsequently joined the Chicago Department of Law as Deputy Corporation Counsel for counseling, appeals, and legal policy. He has experience in litigation at the appellate and Supreme Court levels. He holds a BA from the University of Illinois and a JD from Harvard Law School. Today's program will proceed as follows. Each panelist will make opening remarks in the order I mentioned. Next will come a moderated discussion involving both panelists. We will conclude with audience questions. As Catherine said, if you're watching and have a question, please submit it in the question box found in your toolbar on the right-hand side. We hope that you will find today's program substantive, informative, and constructive. With that, I will turn it over to Professor Cassell. Paul, the floor is yours. Well, thanks, Paul. I appreciate uh, that introduction and the chance to talk about these topics. Uh, as you mentioned, I come at uh, legal issues uh, primarily from a crime victim's point of view. And so I got involved in this particular topic when I uh, started to read the same headlines I think uh, many people read uh, last summer. Uh, we were seeing an alarming increase, and you went through some of the statistics, an alarming increase in homicides and shootings in many of America's cities. And so I, uh, I've published some research on the area before, and uh, I've worked with uh, victims' families and homicides and other cases, and I started to try to drill in to understand uh, what was going on. And if we could go to uh, my first slide, uh, I think we can uh, uh, see a bit uh, of information here that's helpful. Uh, this is information, by the way, that came from a report put together by the Council on Criminal Justice, uh, which I uh, serve on. and. Uh, it, uh, Rick uh, Rosenfeld uh, has put together some very good statistics on homicide and shootings and other crimes that occurred uh, throughout last year. So what you're looking at here is a, a slide showing uh, uh, weekly homicides. It's based on uh, 34 cities around the country, many of the, the largest cities in the country. And what you can see here is it begins in January of 2017, and you can notice the a cyclical pattern in homicides. Uh, seasonality is what econometricians refer to it as. Homicides uh, increase over the summer and then decline uh, in the winter. And you can see that in 2017, 2018, 2019. And then when you get to the yellow shaded area, you can see uh, uh, what happened uh, in 2020. And you'll see that there's sort of a yellow shaded area uh, there's a box there marked pandemic. We all know the pandemic uh, began to strike America around the middle of March, uh, and that produced uh, lockdowns, uh, complications for law enforcement and interacting with people and, and other uh, issues. But those all originated in uh, the middle of March. Uh, 
Uh, I think social mobility was at its lowest level in America around the beginning of April or May, uh, beginning uh, first two weeks of April. Uh, and what we see there is homicide rates are, are roughly at uh, historical levels. But suddenly you see now a vertical red line on this chart. That's the last week in May. And beginning at that point, there's what econometricians call a break in the data or a break point, a structural break. And we see that suddenly the homicide function now moves up to a much higher level than existed before. And so this is the homicide spike occurring again since uh, the last week in May. Uh, if we go to the next slide, we can drill into uh, one particular city, for example. What does this look like? Uh, since we're talking about the Minneapolis effect, it uh, might be useful to talk about uh, what happened in Minneapolis. And, and this is data. This was uh, helpfully assembled by the University of Pennsylvania College of Law. Uh, the crime stats, uh, 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 crimestats.com, city, I'm sorry, citycrimestats.com there. Uh, and what you see uh, here is, I guess, what econometricians would call chunky data. It kind of bounces around because there aren't uh, a continuous flow of homicides. But you can see overall the big picture. If you look at the, the uh, gray line in the back there, the dark gray line, that's a baseline historical average homicides in uh, Minneapolis from 2015 to 2019. And then the red line is what is happening this year. And you can suddenly see, again, if we put a vertical black line, the start of the protests, the anti-police protests in the wake of the death of George Floyd, you see that homicides are significantly higher than they were uh, before. And again, I, uh, the break point in the data appears to be the last week in May. Now this is chunky data, kind of jagged uh, lines, it sort of moves around. What if we had a more continuous data set that might reveal what's going on here? If we go to the next slide, uh, we can see uh, here as uh, some interesting uh, data that shows the same uh, pattern uh, in uh, Minneapolis. This is uh, data that doesn't rely on police reports or police investigations. This is what uh, is known as uh, shots fired reports. Uh, Minneapolis has, uh, technology, shot stopper technology, acoustic devices to listen to the number of shots being fired. Uh, and it, it can differentiate gunshots from other uh, other uh, noises. And you can see here, January, February, March, April, May uh, of uh, 2020, uh, uh, things are, are going at, uh, you know, roughly a level, uh, you know, roughly a, a static level. And then you see the vertical gray line, which is the death of George Floyd uh, while being arrested by Minneapolis police. And there's then a sudden spike uh, in the number of, of shots fired, particularly uh, I think everyone is aware that there was violence in the city of Minneapolis in the week following George Floyd's death. But even if you go two weeks or several months afterwards, you can see there's now a new level of shots being fired in, in the city of Minneapolis. Uh, and so we have a break in the data leading to a new, a new level. Now this is occurring, I guess we've looked now at homicides and shootings. What about other crimes? If we go to the next slide, again, looking at uh, Minneapolis as illustrative of, of other cities here, this is data for all property crimes that have been committed and reported to the police in Minneapolis. And again, the dark gray line is historical averages. The red line is what's happening in 2020. You can see things are kind of along historical averages. And then suddenly in the last week of May at the start of protests, there's a very big spike Again, I think people may be generally aware of looting that followed in Minneapolis in the wake of the protests there. Uh, but then the, uh, the property crime levels return to historical averages. So we're seeing an increase in crime uh, in homicides and shootings, uh, but not in property crimes. And I have a longer paper that uh, presents data for a number of other uh, cities, particularly uh, not just Minneapolis, uh, but also Chicago. Uh, Philadelphia, Milwaukee, New York, looking at those cities as illustrative, and we see similar patterns uh, in those other cities, an increase in homicides and shooting crimes, uh, but not across the board in other violent crimes and certainly not across the board in property crimes. So this raises a question if we go to the next slide. We're trying to figure out what caused this increase in homicides and shootings. And this causal factor should have produced an abrupt increase in homicides and shootings. The timing is important here. It's the last week in May. Uh, remained in place at least through June and July, and even longer as we could have seen uh, in the earlier slides. 
it caused an increase in homicides and shootings uniquely, not across the board, it's not an across the board crime increase. It occurred in U.S. cities, uh, such as the ones I've been talking about, not rural areas. This is a tentative conclusion since the data from rural areas is uh, in 2020 uh, is still dribbling in. And it also, if you look at the homicides in, for example, Chicago or many of these other cities, you find that the increase in homicides and shootings was concentrated in disadvantaged neighborhoods. And so the question is, what factor uh, or factors could have caused this? So if we move to the next slide, uh, we can eliminate, I think, some possibilities. I think everyone is aware that George Floyd died uh, around the end of May and immediately uh, following his death, there were significant protests, uh, not just in Minneapolis, although that's where it started, uh, but Chicago and then cities just across the country. Uh, but there weren't homicides at those protests. Uh, the protesters, for example, in Chicago marched downtown to the Miracle Mile or places like that. Those weren't where the homicides were occurring, they were occurring somewhere else. So I don't think we can say the protests themselves caused the homicide and shooting increases. And, and also those protests uh, occurred most prominently in late May, June, and July and tended to ebb off after that to some degree. And yet the homicide and shooting spikes persisted. What about seasonal impacts? We all know, uh, and again, we could see that in the first slide that I presented today, that there are more homicides in the summer. People are out on the streets, uh, tend to get into trouble and homicides and other shooting kinds of events occur. Uh, but what we saw in the data that I presented uh, to you just a moment ago was something well in excess of normal seasonal increases. So that doesn't seem to be the explanatory factor here. How about increases in firearms purchases? Uh, I think some of you may have read uh, about how when uh, lockdowns occurred and people began to be concerned about home safety and other, other, uh, uh, other issues, uh, there was an increase in firearms purchases. But that firearms increase occurred beginning in the middle of March, right, with the onset of the uh, uh, pandemic. And the number of new firearms purchased was a proverbial drop in the bucket given the existing uh, quantity of firearms in this country. So we don't see something that uniquely increased uh, in the last week of May that would be a causal factor. How about rising unemployment? I think we're all aware of the economic effect of the pandemic and the government responses to it. Uh, but here again, we don't see something that uniquely begins in the last week in May. Uh, economic impacts began uh, much earlier uh, in uh, late March and early April, and they extended uh, throughout the summer. If you plot out unemployment rates, you'll see sort of a gradual uh, increase rather than a sudden spike centered around the last week in May. So that doesn't seem to be the factor. How about the COVID-19 pandemic? It's clear that that affected many aspects of American life, uh, including law enforcement. Law enforcement uh, uh, for example, uh, made changes in response to trying to reduce uh, exposure of their officers uh, to, uh, to uh, COVID-19. But here again, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic began in mid-March. It did not uniquely change in the last week in May. Uh, there isn't something there that seems to have caused a sudden spike in crime, particularly homicides and shooting crimes. It isn't clear again why COVID-19 would lead to a sudden increase in, in those particular kinds of crimes. So I think we can eliminate uh, these possibilities. And that, I think, leaves on the table another possibility. If we could go to the next slide, um, I'm going to dub this the Minneapolis effect. And I've cited uh, a longer article here at the bottom of this slide, where you can read uh, more about uh, my theory. But I think we have uh, what's, occur what's occurred in this country is something akin to an earlier Ferguson effect. You might recall anti-police protests in the wake of a police uh, uh, caused death in Ferguson. Uh, that appear to have caused some increase in crime. Here, I think we have anti-police protests surrounding uh, George Floyd's killing. Uh, as a result, police had to be redeployed away from their normal beats in uh, high crime areas to police the protests. And even extending beyond that, I think what we see, uh, <coughs> excuse me, has happened is a reduction in uh, policing, particularly the kinds of policing that might be expected to have the most effect on uh, uh, homicides and shooting crimes. I'll call this proactive policing. That's things like, uh, those are police initiated activities, things like stop and frisk or vehicle stops, pedestrian stops, other things that are, uh, are expected to try to uh, take firearms off the streets and as a result, result reduce homicides and shootings. 
So if we go to the uh, the next slide, uh, again, I'm going to use Minneapolis as an illustration here, although in the longer paper, we could uh, look at other uh, other cities, and I'll try to show some data from a few other cities here. But this is uh, Minneapolis data uh, for the year 2020. Uh, you can see the historical four-year average, five-year average is in gray there, uh, the number of pedestrian stops. Again, police uh, in some situations can stop pedestrians, stop and frisk to look for firearms. And uh, you see that uh, things move along. The red line is what was occurring in 2020. Seem to have roughly tracked to historic lo uh, historical levels, uh, uh, started to move down a little bit. And then when you plot the start of the protest, uh, I guess uh, pedestrian stops maintain the level to some degree for a couple of weeks. And then we see a big drop off. Probably uh, what we're seeing there is police uh, engaging in pedestrian stops while the protests are occurring. And then we see what looks to be a permanently lower or significantly lower level of pedestrian stops in Minneapolis. Um, let's go to the next slide and we can look at data from another city. Uh, this is the city of, of Chicago, one of our nation's largest cities, of course. And again, we have the, uh, here we have arrest data. So we're taking a, another cut at uh, law enforcement uh, activity, trying to get a sense of what's going on around the country. And you see the gray line there is the historical average uh, uh, based on the four, I think, five preceding years. And you see that uh, up to about the middle of March, police were arresting about the same number of people as they had historically. A big drop off in the middle of March, probably because police were maybe uh, staying more in the station house at the time, but also probably because people were staying at home and not out and about uh, doing things such as committing crimes. And so you see in early April, we're now at a low point. Moving into May, police arrests start to to return to towards normal levels as uh, uh, activity in Chicago was probably moving towards more normal levels. And then we have the start of the protests, arrests uh, maybe connected with that protest uh, are, are maintained for a couple of weeks. And then we see a significant drop off in uh, arrests in Chicago, again, coinciding with the start uh, of police protests there. How about if we go to uh, another city? Uh, the city, uh, this is uh, uh, the city of uh, uh, Philadelphia. Uh, here we're looking at uh, vehicle stop data. So I'm uh, just uh, kind of uh, trying to come up with a variety of different measures that might uh, show us what police officers are doing. Uh, and you see again, uh, the data is that they're at historic, uh, historic levels. Mid-March, there's a decline, low point in April. They begin to return to normal levels and then boom, at the start of the protest, there's a tremendous drop off in vehicle stops uh, coinciding with the protests. This is quantitative data. If we go to the next slide, we can look at some qualitative data that's designed to get at the same point. This is from the city of Milwaukee. Uh, and here are quotations from uh, two uh, senior police leaders in Milwaukee. Uh, and uh, I won't take time to read all of them, but the basic point is that uh, following the anti-police protests uh, that occurred in Milwaukee, as they did in many other cities around the country, uh, police morale was low. Uh, officers began to pull back. Um, uh, we see that uh, they were uh, just police departments in Milwaukee or police officers in Milwaukee were, were distracted. They stopped doing shooting reviews. Uh, they were deployed, police officers, they were deployed to demonstration lines. And, and so there was really a significant redeployment in uh, police power in Milwaukee, again, centered on uh, beginning in late May and, and following through the summer. If we go to the next slide, we can look at another city. Uh, this is New York, uh, uh, as Paul Larkin mentioned at the beginning of this program, very significant increases in homicides and shooting in New York. Uh, again, centered uh, beginning in the last week in May, early in June is when that started. And do we see something that might have triggered that? This is arrest data, New York arrest data, was somewhat lower than average uh, for the first parts of, uh, of uh, 2020. Big decline in April, begin returning to normal levels, and then a significant drop off in the last uh, week in June. So uh, when I put all of this data together, if we go to my, my last slide here, here's the conclusion that I reach. And uh, I know Professor Rosenthal Larry is gonna be talking ab about his uh, assessment of some of these things as well. Uh, but I think the data really isn't in dispute. If you look at my top box here, we're trying to come up with a causal inference. And I know many of you have heard the caution that look, uh, you can't derive a, a causation simply from uh, statistics, uh, uh, but the statistics can be helpful in leading to a causal inference. And I certainly wouldn't argue that a single one of those charts that I just showed you or other charts that I have in my paper 
prove that uh, decline in policing uh, was the cause of the homicide spikes. But I think that's the most likely inference. I think we can start to reach causal inferences here. And it's a combination of these three things. We have quantitative data showing declining levels of, of policing in many American cities. If you go down to the lower right-hand corner, there's the underlying empirical support for a linkage between policing and gun crimes. In my longer paper, I look at uh, empirical studies that have done that show that, look, we can sometimes debate whether police officers make a difference. But when we're talking about things like homicides and shootings, police presence, stop and frisks, other proactive measures designed to take guns off the street do in fact take some guns off the street and do in fact reduce some homicides and shootings. And when that court was uh, was changed uh, beginning in the last week of May, the predicted empirical result would be an increase in homicides and shootings. And finally, I think there's a qualitative suggestion if you talk to police officers around the country about what was happening this summer, many of them would point the finger at uh, a decline in police morale, there were increases in police retirements and a pullback from some of the more aggressive policing techniques that are effective against gun crime. This all leads to the conclusion that a decline in pro proactive policing is what caused the 2020 homicide spike. And I think that's the best explanation for what happened here. Paul, thank you very much. I appreciate that. We will be coming back to you shortly. But in the meantime, we're now gonna hear from Professor Rosenthal. Professor, the floor is yours. Thank you. Professor Cathell, at least in my view, has convincingly demonstrated the relationship between a decline in proactive policing and this violent crime spike that occurred in major cities beginning at the end of May and into the succeeding months. But the question that remains, which I focus on, on in, in my paper, is what's the mechanism by which this phenomenon occurs? Why is there a decline in police activities? Now, there are at least three theories that, that come to mind, uh, one of which is a decline in community cooperation, that in the wake of police scandals like George Floyd, the public gets more cynical about police is less willing to cooperate with the police and give them the, the kind of information it leads that would facilitate proactive police. Now, when you look at the data, you start with a, with, with a threshold problem that many of the techniques of proactive policing were invented in order to minimize the need to rely on communities because in high crime, disadvantaged communities frequently there are already high levels of public cynicism, as well as concerns about the safety of cooperating with the police. So many of these techniques of proactive patrol, like stop and risk, are premised not on leads from the community, but instead careful scrutiny of geocoded crime data to try to identify the criminogenic hotspots of crime in each community. So, we then start looking at the empirical data. And one thing Professor Castle does in his paper is he focuses on what is probably the best proxy available to us for levels for community willingness to cooperate with the police. And that's called the 911. And one of the things Professor Castle establishes is while there was a dramatic decline in proactive policing in the wake of the George Floyd protests, there was not a proactive decline in community calls to 911 seeking police assistance. So the data is sparse when it comes to this community cooperation theory as an explanation for the crime drop. Now, a second theory that sometimes advanced, you could shorthand it as the blue flu, or, or what I consider um, an account that says that the police are engaged in uh, what might be a racially tinged form of petulance, that when they encounter community cynicism, community criticism, their response is something along the lines of, well, I'm just going to stop doing my job and let's see how much they like that. Again, it's possible that that happens. But if you try to look for empirical evidence, you find it's, it's wanting. It's difficult to study levels of police morale. Those who have done it usually rely on anonymous interviews. 
the interviewing data that's available, though, does not suggest that police response to these kinds of scandals and community criticism is an unwillingness to continue to perform their jobs. There's very little of that reflected in, in relevant data. Beyond that, though, there's a rich set of data in the um, literature about the sociology of police that documents the existence of what is frequently referred to as a warrior culture among police, that police view themselves as having special responsibilities um, and a kind of role as the, the, the thin blue line protecting us all this world. Now, this warrior culture can be problematic in many respects, but it's quite at odds with the notion that these warriors get their feelings bruised with some ease and then decide that they're no longer going to be warriors. The literature really provides very little support. So although I don't think we can dismiss entirely either of these explanations, not much data that supports them. So that leads me to the third explanation, which I think is the best ground in the data. And that starts by examining the incentive structure confronting policing, what I sometimes refer to as the law and economics of policing, or in this case, de-policing. Now, if you were to analyze the incentive structure of police officers, you run into one central reality upfront. Police officers do not internalize the benefits of effective policing. There's no city in the country, to my knowledge, that ties police compensation to, for example, reductions in crime. Many years ago, I was at an anti-violence conference and a, a highly respected economist from the University of Chicago was asked for his recommendation for fighting crime. And like a good economist, what he said is, you ought to increase police wages when crime rates go down. And the whole room erupted in protests and the most vehement protest to that proposal were the police officers who started yelling, do you realize what's going to happen if you tell people that they can get raises by reducing reported crime rates? Very hard to create in which the police internalize the benefits of effective policing. It therefore follows that if you force police to internalize the costs of effective law enforcement, whether that's by facing potential criminal liability, civil liability, or internal discipline, losing your job. If police internalize the costs and not the benefits of effective police, what you're likely to do is get over deterrence. And that's the phenomenon that I think comes into play in the wake of these police scandals, because there is an immediate public demand for greater police accountability. And when you increase the perception in the jurisdiction that police officers are more likely to be subject to discipline, if they engage in proactive policing, what you're likely to get is less proactive policing. This is particularly problematic because what the literature demonstrates is that the single police tactic that has the, by far the greatest efficacy in terms of reducing crime, especially violent crime, is aggressive patrol targeting criminogenic hotspots of crime. There's now really quite a persuasive demonstration in the criminological literature that crime is not something that spreads uniformly, even in high crime communities. Instead, it clusters in discrete locations where there's an intersection of motivated offenders, number one, vulnerable victims, number two, and third, what's considered a lack of guardianship. If there are not third parties like police officers, security cameras, um, or civilians that are going to increase the risk potential offenders perceive if they commit crimes at those locations. This kind of targeted hotspot policing has had dramatic effects, but it also creates risks. Whenever officers intervene on the streets today, there is some risk that a violent confrontation may ensue and some risk that somebody may one day second-guess the judgment of that police officer. So if you're internalizing the costs of effective policing, you, you may, by 
intervening on the streetscape increased the risk that you're going to be the subject of disciplinary allegations. And yet officers do not internalize the benefits. What you will get is over deterrence. Now, the good news and the bad news from this is as follows. The good news is when de-policing occurs as a result of a discrete event like the George Floyd protests and the demands for police accountability in its wake, de-policing is going to fade over time as officers slowly perceive uh, less of a risk that their superiors are going to respond in these political demands by increasing the threat of this. But there's also bad news, as we know. These protests have led to proposals for systemic reform, which might, over the long term, create greater perceived risks to police through the process of what is popularly referred to as defunding the police. And that's the policy implication that I think is of greatest concern. If we institutionalize measures that are likely to tell officers that they're, that they're going to more likely internalize the costs of effective policing without internalizing benefits, we wind up with a less effective police. Now, none of this is a reason to ignore police misconduct like the George Floyd case, but it is a reason to proceed with caution. And to address what I regard as first and foremost, not a legal issue, but a management issue. We need more effective management in our police departments, but that's not going to occur if we do nothing more than increase officers' perception that they're likely to face discipline when they engage in proactive policing. And with that, I can return it back to Mr. Lutton. Paul, why don't you join us on screen so the three of us can go back and forth? Paul, do you have any anything you uh, want to add uh, to your remarks in light of what Lauren, Professor Rosenthal has said? No, I, th I think his analysis is uh, completely complementary uh, with mine. I, I and this is what I, I say: we have sort of interlocking arguments that that all come together here. Uh, uh, I, I think no one really debates that there was a big homicide and shooting spike in this country last during the summer. And uh, it also seems like there isn't a lot of debate that proactive policing has, has been scaled back. And I think uh, Larry puts then in the, the last missing piece of the puzzle in there. Why is it that police pulled back? And I, I think they were worried about being second guessed, worried about uh, uh, being criminally charged, worried about uh, being attacked while on the streets. I mean, all those things. Uh, I, mean, I don't think this is some controversial theory. I think all those things came together to produce a reduction in policing. And if we want to solve the problem, then we need to, as Larry says, we've got a management issue here. We need to think about ways of, of restoring policing back to where it was uh, before the anti-police protests began. All right, well, let me pick up on what you just said. Suppose that both of you just got a phone call from the chief of police in Minneapolis, in New York City, in Philly, or whatever, or the mayor in any of those towns, or the new attorney general, Merrick Garland, uh, asking you, what do we do now to try to anticipate this problem reoccurring? Because it occurred in Ferguson, it has occurred in Minneapolis, and it might occur again. What can we do now, anticipating the problem, to make sure that we don't see the same Ferguson effect, Minneapolis effect occur. Either, it's a, it's a toss up, either of you can go. Larry may have some good thoughts on that because I do think it is, uh, you know, we, we need to change, uh, uh, I think Larry's right as to the mechanism, individual officers are pulling back, how do we change that? I mean, there, there probably are some management things that could be done. I also think there are some cultural things that could be done in terms of supporting the police. But I'd, I'd be interested to hear uh, uh, Professor Rosenthal's uh, uh, thoughts on this, and then I can chime in from there. I have a very simple proposal in two pieces. The first is I would advise any big city department to continue to engage in proactive policing, targeting the statistical hotspots of crime. Frequently, debate about stop and frisk is, is framed in binary terms. Stop and frisk is either good or bad. But depending on how it's used, it can be good and it can be bad. There's plenty of evidence, in my view, that in 
the 2000s, for example, stop and frisk was going growing so rapidly in New York City that it vastly exceeded the point of diminishing returns. And what was starting to happen is what what uh, sometimes referred to as out of place out. People of color were being stopped not because they were near criminogenic hotspots, but because they were in affluent white neighborhoods and some officer under pressure to come up with more stops would, would just stop anybody who looked out of place. But a properly targeted hotspot policing strategy is the single best tactic officers can employ in order to drive down crime. Now that's got to be coupled with something on the discipline side. And I have a very simple proposal which drives both the right and the left crazy, which is why it's never likely to be adopted, but it's followed. I would take the position as a police officer that a police department should never fire an officer for engaging in excessive force. Never. The officer might face civil liability, he might face criminal liability, and he might face a suspension. But the policy would be, we understand the difficulty of making these split-second judgments. And we're going to offer you a measure of safe harbor, a measure so that you can be confident that second-guessing will be limited. But there's a quarrel. Anyone who makes a false statement about what happened on the street, all officers would be required to file reports whenever force is used. All officers would be required to submit to interviews. And after the incident is over, after everybody's pulse has returned to normal and they have time to reflect and deliberate, any officer who makes a false statement about what the officer did or, or anybody else, that would be automatic grounds for termination. So that just as officers understood that there will be a measure of safe harbor for them, when they have to instantly respond to a threat on the street, they will also understand that once they get back to the station, they're going to be required to tell the truth. And once you know that you have to tell the truth, you're much less likely to violate the rules in the first place. So this kind of approach, which turned discipline on its head, most departments often hemmed in by collective bargaining agreement state laws, which give police officers extraordinary protections, treat the underlying misconduct as the problem and not the false report. The way you change the culture is by dismantling what is often referred to um, as the blue wall of silence or the code of silence. And you start by making it very clear to officers that once all the shouting is over and they're back at the station, they've got to tell the truth. Uh, Professor Rosenthal, you went into that in your article, and I thought it was a terrific set of proposals. What I'd like to throw out to each of you is a question as to a related and follow-up proposal. To what extent uh, is the problem here not just management within the police department, but a political one? You don't have mayors and the like who are willing to support the police, who are willing to do the sorts of things that Professor Rosenthal just recommended never fire a police officer for being uh, aggressive in his uh, pursuit of crime, uh, but firing them if they lie about it, uh, and making clear that they're going to do this, uh, and that when you have riots or when you have these sorts of homicides, that they're going to require the police and support them when they go do this. Is that something that uh, needs to be added to the two remedies that uh, Professor Rosenthal mentioned? further demonstrated obvious, clear, and repeated political support for cops on the beat when they are trying to prevent homicides? Yes, let me uh, take a stab at that. I think the answer to your question is, is yes, Paul. Uh, and I think I can illustrate the point uh, with something that occurred in New York that compounded uh, the homicide spikes that tragically uh, took place there. There was a bill that was proposed in the wake uh, of George Floyd's death uh, that restricted the way in which police officers in New York could effect an arrest. It became known as the diaphragm bill because the bill was written so broadly that if a police officer tackled a bad guy in the course of making an arrest and depressed the diaphragm of the officer had committed a crime. And this happened without regard to uh, 
mens rea is the way the law professors refer to it without regard to what was the police officer thinking and so this bill went through and now police officers are being told look if you depress someone's diaphragm even accidentally in the course of effecting an arrest then you've committed a crime and political leaders i think have the opportunity to say wait a minute we really whatever one thinks about you know whether force should be used and to what degree in arrest that that's going too far uh, but no one spoke up and that bill went through and was adopted by the by the uh, authorities in new york city and the result was i think a significant decrease in arrests and the result sadly then was a significant increase in shooting and homicides so that's a classic example of where i think effective political leadership could have shaped a much narrower bill that would have protected legitimate police interests and concerns about excessive force and arrests and and struck that uh, goldilocks middle of the road approach and instead, it went too far in one direction because of, I guess, political calculation that it was better to say nothing and to, to speak up on behalf of police. Well, what I added is perhaps a slightly more nuanced view. Aristotle tells us in all things seek the mean. And that comes to supporting the police, I think, as much as anything, because you can take anything too far. Um, the, the Giuliani and Bloomberg administration in New York City in 1990s and 2000s consistently supported the police and what they wound up with is a level of stop and frisk that was both wholly unnecessary and unsustainable that produced a backlash resulting in very different policies and when the courts pressured the city to reduce the level of stop and frisk it went way down without an increase in crime the police are not always right any more than anybody else on the other hand, the very worst thing you can do is the kind of a reform that Professor Castle was just measuring, uh, mentioning, where you make it clear we are going to more comprehensively second guess what happened. Uh, one of the proposals you hear a lot is the officers should be required to use the least restrictive alternative in any situation involving use of force. Well, with benefit of hindsight, you could always find a less restrictive alternative. Almost anybody could lose their job under that state. Conversely, however, I feel for most of these big city mayors because as they try to reform their departments, they are frequently hemmed in by a series of state laws which require them to engage in collective bargaining. If they bargain an impasse, some mediator is going to come up with the union contract. And these contracts make it extremely difficult to discipline officers who engage in misconduct. So, I think both parties, for their own reasons, have decided that it's in their interest not to take on the police unions. And as a result, in the state capitals, in so many places, Minneapolis said it wanted to abolish its police department. Turns out Minneapolis can't do that because there's a state labor law that says that they've got to stick with their current contract. We can't solve the management problem until we solve the labor problem, which really inhibits in really profound ways the ability police executives to run their departments. Let me offer you a question that came in from a member of the audience. Would you expect that there would be a similar effect in schools as various districts start to remove school resource officers or police officers from elementary, high schools, and intermediate schools and the like? Uh, or is this more an adult crime problem than a juvenile crime problem? My quick sense, uh, it's not something I've studied in detail, but my quick sense is yes, there could very well be the same kinds of effects with regard to schools, although hopefully, I think uh, the reason we saw so many shootings and homicides around the, the nation's largest cities this summer is, has something to do with uh, the presence of firearms and the, the possibility of, of disputes escalating to, to shootings and, and, and ultimately to even a lethal level. Hopefully, school environments aren't quite at that that point but sadly sometimes they are and to the extent that they are i expect we could see the same kind of effects and i add that the data suggests that schools are pretty much always safer than the surrounding communities so if i were making resource allocation decisions about limited law enforcement resources i'd be more likely to want to place the officers outside the school in say 
disputed gang turf that students have to cross in order to get to school than I would to, to place the officers inside of school. I think that often officers went inside of school as a response to a political demand for more visible protection of school children, um, rather than a dispassionate policy analysis based on geocoded data about where the real threat is. Well, let me ask you both a question that uh, came to mind based on what Professor Rosenthal just said. He referred to gangs. To what extent is this homicide increase attributable to gang activity, and it's therefore a gang problem, rather than an increase in armed robberies where the armed robberies go south for one reason or another, and you have not just a robbery, but a homicide that results from it? So I think a lot of it is gang related. I think a lot of the shootings, and if you look at uh, the data in various cities, you see a lot of these shootings are, are gang related. So that's certainly, I think, part of the problem, probably a significant part of the problem. And the, the data shows shootings escalating far in excess of, of robberies. It, it, it's always difficult to figure out what gang-related crime means. There's, well, this is getting into a different topic, but we need clear national standards in reporting crime, police activity. Um, so that we got a more reliable flow of data. One of the difficulties Professor Castle faces, faced, which I'm sure frustrated him to no end, is there aren't uniform data sources available. The data trickles out slowly. We'd love to know what, say, the, the pedestrian stop data is on a monthly basis on each, from each city, but we can't because we don't have those kinds of standards to enable study. Um, but that said, I think it's pretty clear that robberies are a relatively inefficient way to finance a criminal lifestyle. You've got to find an attractive target with limited guardianship. And in disadvantaged neighborhoods, there are not a lot of people walking around the streetscape with lots of things that are easy to steal and easy to fence. There is, however, often a lucrative drug trade that's controlled in the neighborhoods. And local gangs create monopolies in order to bring money into disadvantaged communities, where at least the perception is that legitimate means to upward mobility are not readily available. Professor Cassell, you, your article was published in December, so it, it has not been out there in the literature for a long time. But have you felt pushback from various quarters, either from other professors or from other organizations who have either uh, criticized uh, the facts or the inferences you drew from them? And if so, what's your response? Right. Well, uh, there was, uh, Professor Rosenthal and I published our papers in the Federal Sentencing Reporter. There was one other paper by Rick Rosenfeld, uh, who did some of the statistics that I cited at the beginning of my presentation today. Uh, he's done uh, a lot of analysis of crime trends, and, and he took a look at my paper and he said, well, I think you make a case that there has been some de-policing, but I'm not sure you've made the case that that is as a result of police pulling back so much as it is uh, the citizenry pulling back from police and not cooperating as much. And so there isn't an ability to police because uh, I guess the argument would be there's been some delegitimatizing of the police. People are not calling the police and giving them leads or cooperating when they see a crime. So I think that is sort of the competing narrative here, uh, a lack of police legitimacy. And, and there, you know, that's a theory. There's no doubt about it. Uh, it's a hypothesis. I guess the problem is I haven't seen a lot of data to support that hypothesis. Uh, Professor Rosen, uh, uh, Rosenthal mentioned that I had put together uh, some uh, information on 911 calls. And there have been uh, some studies that try to link a decline in 911 calls to a decline in legitimacy. And, and a resulting increase in crime. But that's not what we saw in America this summer. There doesn't seem to be in cities like New York or Milwaukee or, or Minneapolis, a big decline in, uh, in police calls, calls for service to 911. To the contrary, we even see in some cities an increase in calls because, because of the increase in crime. If the police respond to incentives, one incentive they could respond to are tort suits by uh, survivors of someone who's killed or the victims if they're not killed 
uh, and they can be brought in federal court under Bivens, or they can be brought in state court under state constitutions. There is a movement afoot to eliminate the qualified immunity defense for police officers. If that were to happen, who would wind up, well, first of all, what would the police response be if qualified immunity were eliminated? Would the depolicing become a more permanent phenomenon, for example? Secondly, would it be the police officers who would ultimately bear the cost of this, or would it be the community itself? Because the city would have to take the liability uh, for the officers in order to encourage people to become police officers. And therefore, ironically, the taxpayers would be paying for this rather than the officers. Could you, uh, do both of you address that problem? What do you think about the answers to those questions? Larry probably is best suited on that one. <laughs> If police officers had to actually pay civil judgments against them, that would, of course, be another means by which you force officers to internalize the costs of effective policing without internalizing the benefits, and the result would be over deterrence. Now, that's exactly why the defense of qualified immunity was, was recognized. But even with the defense of qualified immunity, officers still have to pay fees. Still have to pay judgments in cases where there's no qualified immunity. So the regime that has resulted on the civil side is a regime of pretty, pretty universal indemnification. The employers, the cities actually pay the judgments, the officers don't. And the civil rights bar likes indemnification as much as anybody else because they've got deep taxpayer pockets available to them. There are a handful of cities in the country where because they face such profound financial consequences, they've stopped indemnifying officers. And what happens in those cities is plaintiff's lawyers stop suing for police misconduct or anything else because they can't get paid. So the costs of civil litigation are passed along to the taxpayer. Now, how, what mechanism does this create to actually reduce the level of police misconduct? The advocates of the abolition of qualified immunity often do not address this kind of question. In fact, the incentives facing municipal officials who have to budget for these liabilities are really quite perverse. You could cut the police budget in order to fund greater litigation costs, but then what's going to happen is you're going to have police officers and politicians and community groups saying, there are not enough officers on the street to protect themselves. So there's empirical work in this area. It turns out very rarely do legal costs wind up coming out of the police budget. The police budget is usually based on the need for public safety, not litigation costs. Instead, some other department's budget gets cut. In the main, what that means is government services for the least politically powerful usually the poor and disadvantaged are the ones most likely to be cut. So you wind up with a set of really perverse incentives. If you increase the exposure to damages liability faced by cities, they're really not very likely to reduce the police budget. They're much more likely to reduce somebody else's budget. Now, at most, you can hope that police officers uh, uh, or police executives find some way to more effectively manage their subordinates that reduces the threat of liability without creating over deterrence. But that's a management problem up front. So my own view is if where there is a political will to reform, then we should think of this as a management problem and insist on measured accountability mechanisms where there's no political will to reform. It's doubtful that any tinkering with the law, qualified immunity or otherwise, is gonna do anything. In fact, abolishing qualified immunity is really likely to do only one thing, which is to price in the cost um, of using excessive force against individuals. But if the police officers aren't paying the judgments, no reason to think that they'll be responding to judgments. Uh, to conclude with an anecdote, back when I worked for Mayor Daly, I found out Chicago police officers loved getting sued in these civil actions. And the reason they liked it is that they would have to come 
to their lawyers' offices to meet with them, and they got paid overtime for that. So not only did they not have to pay the judgments, they actually made money every time they got sued. Professor Cassell, we're running towards the end. I'll give you the last word. I think one of the important things that I hope people will take away from this program today is it's, I think, uncontested that there were very significant increases in homicides and shootings around the country. And Professor Rosenthal and I have put together uh, some explanations for why we think it occurred. Uh, I hope others will, will join into this debate, join into this discussion and try to figure out. I mean, there are literally hundreds and hundreds of lives were lost last year that would not have been lost if homicide levels were the same as they were, uh, let's say, in 2019. And so this is a huge, I think it's the most important question in criminal justice today, and I hope we can figure out some answers. Listen, on behalf of Heritage and on my own behalf, I want to thank each of you for the time you spent today. Thank you for preparing. Thank you for coming and educating the people here. Heritage, the listeners, and I owe you a debt of gratitude for trying to help us address a very difficult, thorny, and controversial problem. Professor Cassell, Professor Rosenthal, thank you very much. And with that, we are adjourned.